wanted to give you a little bit of an explanation why before I, in, uh, before I introduce our guest speaker for today. I hate to say guest speaker because he, well, you'll find out. Um, so earlier in the week, uh, my wife became very sick, and we were pretty convinced she had COVID. And so I immediately called Rod, and we started working through this and realized that if we have COVID in the house, then I probably need to not be here today. And, um, and so what do we do? Uh, thankfully, we're a church-planting church, and we've got plenty of preachers to choose from. And uh, we decided to call Keith Christensen, uh, our newest church planter, to come and preach for us today. And uh, let me just tell you, uh, for a little background, because so many of you are visitors, and you may have heard us talk about our model of ministry, uh, mo the model being in a nutshell that uh, we train men uh, to lead spiritually, to know the Word of God. If necessary, we help them through seminary or whatever. And then we give them approximately five years of pastoral experience here, uh, serving with our church, which is what Randy Barlow is doing right now. He's in that five. Actually, it's going to be six years for him because we lost a year from COVID. And, uh, and then at the end of that time, if everything comes together, by God's grace, our fallible dependent plan is in five years to plant a church. Our first church was in Mansfield, and Brent Osterberg uh, started that one. And uh, that is now a thriving, stable church. And it took all of five years to get there. Um, but praise God, if you know anyone who lives in the Mansfield area, or if you live in the Mansfield area, then maybe you need to not drive all the way up here. Uh, maybe it would be better for you to be at uh, Brent's church. And that's uh, Brent's church is Living Hope Bible Church down in Mansfield. And it's a wonderful, wonderful body of believers there. Uh, five years ago, we brought Keith Christensen on uh, with his wonderful wife. We're so glad. You know, Katie and I were just talking a couple minutes ago about the fact that uh, we only live like four streets apart, and we only see each other when something like this happens or there's a conference and we go out of state or something like that because we're all so busy in ministry. And so Keith and Katie are here as, long, as well as Timothy and Stephen and Eden and Bethany. Right? Are they all here? And uh, we love you guys. We love you guys. Do you miss us? I'm asking the kids. Do you miss Calvary? Yeah, yeah. We miss you guys, too. Um, so I've asked Keith to come and preach today. Uh, he is, because of uh, just where God has brought us as brothers in the Lord, uh, he is one of our dearest friends, and we love it when... Keith can come back and preach. Many of you have probably already heard him, and will in the future as well. We hope to get Brent up here sometime, and his co-pastor, um, Ben, uh, who you have not heard probably preach, and uh, we're hoping for the best on that. Um, please be praying for our future relative to church planting. As I said, Randy is, is uh, next up, and uh, it'll be another five years probably before we launch him, but that's the goal. That's the goal. And in these troubling times, you know what? Uh, the really big churches are going to really struggle if things continue to get worse. And small is the new big. Um, these are going to be the stable churches or the ones that are small and are guided by men of God who really know and are devoted to God's word. And that's the case with Keith and Christ Fellowship Bible Church. So enough of me. Keith, would you come and minister the word of God? Amen. It's a delight to uh, be with you again. I love this church. Um, we just passed our one-year anniversary last Sunday at Christ Fellowship. Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, if small is the new big, we are a really big church. Um, but we are, by God's grace, uh, a happy, united church that's being shepherded by God through his word. And last Sunday, we were able to recount with much thankfulness many good things God has done this past year. And many of you have been partners in ministry with us 
through your prayers and other ways you've encouraged us. So just sincerely, thank you. Thank you. And on behalf of the saints at Christ Fellowship, I want to greet you as well. I was under strict orders to do that, so I did. And thank you also uh, for this opportunity to preach. So let's open in a word of prayer, and then we'll get into God's word. Lord, I pray that you would show us in your word that what we just saying about Jesus is true, that he is the Lord above the universe. And I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart wider to see his glory and to want to give up ourselves to him. God, I pray that you would even be so merciful as to save some. God, you said it's your good pleasure to give the kingdom. So, God, we pray that you would um, give it. And to those whom you have already graciously saved, again, I pray that you would cause us to uh, increase in faith and in hope and in love and especially in, in our devotion to Jesus and our hunger to know him. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you're open, your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts. At Christ Fellowship, we're going through the book of Acts, and I'm just going to bring you along with us this morning. Acts 3, we finished chapter 2 last week with a beautiful portrait of the early church in Jerusalem, and they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's what it says in Acts 2.42. And the church devoted herself to the teaching of the apostles because they were the Lord Jesus' official spokesmen or chosen delegates. Uh, The apostles were Christ's authoritative witnesses. Those 12 men followed Jesus through his whole earthly ministry, learning from him. Then they were eyewitnesses of his death, of his resurrection, of his ascension to glory. And so people can believe in the saving work of Christ on the basis of their first-hand eyewitness testimony. About him, and, and people must receive the apostles' testimony about Jesus because their words about him carry divine authority. To reject or ignore the apostles' teaching is not to reject or ignore men, but God. Because these men spoke about Christ with words that came from the Lord himself. Jesus specially commissioned them to proclaim him, and he promised that these eyewitnesses would speak with words that the Holy Spirit would give them, inspired true words from God about Christ that came from the apostles, and that's why the church devoted herself to their teaching. The Lord wanted people to know that the apostles were speaking about him on his behalf, with his authority. He wanted the church to devote themselves to their teaching, and so that's why we read what we do in the next verse of Acts 2, Acts 2.43. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The signs and wonders were meant to confirm that what the apostles taught was true and from God. The miracles they did stamped their teaching with a seal of divine authority. And their miracle working ministry is described again after Acts 2.43 and Acts 5.12. It says there, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Well, our text today, in between those two verses is the story of one of those apostolic signs. All of chapter 3, most of chapter 4, tells the story of a crippled man who started walking. And twice this healing of of the lame beggar is called a sign in 412, excuse me, 422 and 416. Now some translations simply use the word miracle, but, but I think sign is more helpful because it underlines how this miracle was meant to point beyond itself and explain some other truth. Do you understand that? That signs don't 
typically point at themselves, right? They don't say, look at me, I'm a sign. Uh, there are those billboards, though, that say, does advertising work? It just did. You know, those are self-referential signs. But typically, signs don't point to themselves. The point of a sign is what it points to, beyond itself. And the miracle that was worked in Acts 3 serves that purpose. It, it points to the real point of the chapter, which is the glory and power of Jesus. The miracle is just a megaphone through which the Apostle Peter proclaimed what God has done in Christ. And you have missed it. You have missed the main point of this chapter. If your big takeaway is about healing and not the truth Peter proclaims about Jesus. You know, I've noticed uh, it's easy for Christians to become preoccupied with things that aren't the main thing. In this chapter, as in all of life, Christ is the main thing. It's far too often, far too many Christians, far too many churches, Jesus loses center stage. And that can happen in very good churches and even the most sincere Christians. I want to invite you to ask yourself, are you in that place today? Has your life has your faith become primarily focused on something other than him? Let, let Acts 3 refocus you. Jesus is the point of this sign. And so the majority of the chapter is a spirit-inspired sermon about Jesus. Now first in the passage, we'll see the sign itself. That's our first main point. See the sign. Look at verse 1. Now, Peter and John, two apostles, were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Well, that fits with what we uh, just read about the early church at the end of chapter 2. Verse 42 said the church was devoting themselves to prayer. Verse 46 they, says they did it in the temple, day by day, attending the temple together. Well, the next verse in chapter 3 introduces us to another man who also came to the temple day by day. Look at verse 2. A man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Well, this verse gives us an indication of how severe the man's disablement was. He, he had to be carried from one place to another and set down at the temple gate. The verse said he had been in this condition even from his mother's womb. Chapter 4, verse 22 says this man was over 40 years old. So he had known many years of having to be carried around like this. He had never known anything else. Day after day he laid there asking for alms, begging for gifts of charity or mercy. Every day of his life was spent like this, and it had been that way for a long time. But this is the last day he would spend like this. Look at verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Verse 4, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Peter and John focus intently on this man. He, they ask him to focus intently back at them. The man will, we'll see that next, and that's because he supposes he's about to get something from them. People usually don't engage a beggar unless they're planning to give something to him. And so you see in verse 5, he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And of course he was right. He was about to receive something from them, not what he was expecting, though. Verse 6, Peter said, not sung, but said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up, walk. Now, I'm sure this man's heart sank after the first few words out of Peter's mouth. I don't have any silver and gold. The man thought, yeah, yeah, I get that all the time. Sorry, man, I don't carry cash. 
But his disappointment was soon replaced by, uh, I think, bewilderment. Walk. Walk. What are you talking about? I have never taken a step in my entire life. Haven't you seen me at this gate day after day? You think I'm some kind of crook? I'm guessing that the man did not right away try to get up and walk because we find in the next verse that Peter reaches out to grab the guy and pull him up. Verse 7, he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Some translations say that Peter seized him by the right hand to raise him up. And, And that action certainly squares with what we read about Peter and his personality in the Gospels. As the lame man lays there, I imagine he looked at Peter surprised, maybe even offended. And then Peter laid hold of him and gives him a little yank, which may have surprised and offended him even more. But as he was being seized, he sensed something wonderful. He felt something he had never felt before. Strength in his ankles and in his feet. And he was exhilarated. Immediately, he he has this overwhelming urge to jump. And so he does, and then he kept doing it. Look at verse 8. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. For the first time ever, he stood, he walked, and he leaped and leaped and leaped. And, And he walked with Peter and John into the temple, jumping up and down all the while, He was praising God, no doubt, with extreme jubilance. He was causing quite a scene, I'm sure. He didn't care. And he did attract a lot of attention in the temple. If someone walked into church doing this, all of you would turn around to look. That's what happened in Acts 3. Look at verse 9. All the people saw him walking and praising God. And it didn't take long for the crowd to realize who this Uh, loud jump man was. Look at verse 10. They recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Is that? That can't be who I think it, it, it is. It's the crippled guy who's always outside the gate. And so the crowd runs to get a closer look, to find out more. Look at verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. This is an amazing scene, isn't it? The man is grabbing Peter and John as he's jumping up and down and walking with them. And all the people rush to where they are. And they gather around these men in Solomon's portico. That was a very large covered courtyard in the temple complex. And Peter sees the crowd and realizes, what a wonderful opportunity this is. (laughs) To proclaim the name that healed the man, Jesus Christ. So he begins to explain what happened. And that begins the next main point of the passage. We've Seen the sign, now understand the sign. Understand the sign. Learn what this miracle means. Peter tells us, beginning in verse 12, When Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? I think meaning this man. Why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. Don't look at us, we didn't make him walk. Don't look at him. He didn't make himself walk. It wasn't our power. It wasn't our piety that accomplished this. Are you quick to give God the credit he deserves, like Peter? Uh, It would have been pretty easy for Peter to indulge a little glory for himself here. Big crowds all around him. They're all staring at him. They're amazed at him. 
we need our hearts tuned like Peter's in this verse. We must put to death the sinful inclinations in our heart that would want to draw attention to ourselves, to our own power or piety, instead of pointing people's gaze to the true source of every blessing, God in Christ. And we can do that in our hearts the more that we learn to rely on God and not on ourselves. When we are ministering to others, when you're trying to do good to others, really when you're trying to do anything that's truly good, we must not finally rely on any personal ability God has given us, not our power. Neither must we rely on any personal godliness God has given us, our piety. We need to rely on God himself. Peter said, why do you stare at us? I'll tell you who you should direct your amazement towards. And he gives the direct answer down in verse 16, in Jesus' name. Faith in Jesus' name has made this man well. In verse 13, then, he starts to build to that conclusion by first explaining uh, how it is that Jesus is in a position to be the one responsible for this miracle. That's what the sign signifies, first of all. God has glorified Jesus. See verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Okay, remember, he's addressing fellow Jews. The God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. Meaning God has exalted Jesus of Nazareth to the place of highest honor. Chapter 2 taught us he has seated Jesus with him on his throne at his right hand. To share in his rule. To show Jesus is equal with the Father in power and glory. They are one in power and glory. God glorified Jesus, his servant. Now, servant here is not the typical word translated servant or bondservant or slave in the New Testament. This word for servant is a more specific and unique word, which refers to one who's been appointed by God to, to fill some special role in God's purposes in the world. And this word for servant is the title given repeatedly to the coming Messiah in the prophecies of the Old Testament, especially in the book of Isaiah. You know the servant songs in the book of Isaiah? Peter is identifying Jesus as the promised servant of the Lord who would come to save and to reign. And Peter does the same thing at the end of this sermon. If you look at verse 26, saying about Jesus, God having raised up his servant, the same special title is used there. Now in verse 13, when he says God glorified his servant, that especially recalls Isaiah 52, 13, where God foretold, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And Peter is saying, that's Jesus. Jesus is that promised servant, and God did what he said he would do. He's glorified him. He has lifted him up high. And that's why Jesus' name could make the lame man walk. Now, the second half of verse 13, Peter clarifies which Jesus exactly he's talking about. And as he does that, he contrasts the way that they had treated Jesus with the way God the Father had honored him. But look at verse 13 again. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. The people Peter is talking to are some of the same crowd in Jerusalem that had demanded Jesus be put to death just a few weeks earlier. 
They had strongly opposed Pilate's offer to punish and release Jesus. And here they are hearing about the same Jesus again. Peter describes their denial of Jesus further in the next verse, verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Well, this verse highlights how heinous and irrational, really, their opposition to Jesus was. And all rejection of Christ is fundamentally insane and harmful for people. In order to deny Christ before Pilate, they literally requested that a murderer be released among them. You ask for him. You said, no, don't give us Jesus. Give us a murderer. Luke 23, 18, they all cried out together, away with this man and and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city for murder. This verse highlights then the wickedness of the one that they asked for, but it also, on the flip side, highlights the glorious goodness of the one they denied. Do you see that? And calling Jesus the righteous one in verse 14. That again is meant to plug Jesus into the very great prophecy about the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, 11, the Lord said, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Uh, There are uh, different ideas about what exactly Peter means when he's calling him the Holy One here in verse 14. I think it's most likely Peter means by that title to equate him with God. That's very much in line with the prophecy about the servant that Peter's been alluding to. When God said in Isaiah 52, my servant shall be high and lifted up, he put this servant of his on par with himself. And included the servant in his own unique glory and and holiness. Now I say that because the only other times in the book of Isaiah that someone is called high and lifted up, it is God. In Isaiah 6, the prophet wrote, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And angels called out, Holy, holy, holy! is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory, this high and lifted up one. Then in Isaiah 57, 15, the Lord is described as the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. What is being said about the coming servant of the Lord when God says He will be glorified as one who is high and lifted up? This servant will also be seen as the Holy One of Israel. The Lord of hosts who sits exalted on the throne of God. Jesus' name could make the lame leap because he is the Holy and Righteous One. The man, the man Jesus who lived in Nazareth and was crucified in Jerusalem is the Son of God in flesh. And Peter highlights the divine glory of Jesus from another angle in the next verse, verse 15. Look there now. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Jesus is the source of all life. He's the creator of all things. He's the son through whom the father made the world. Some translations say something instead uh, like prince of life, which is very similar. Jesus is the one with the authority to give life. In Christ's new life, creation power is seen in the sign that's performed in Acts 3. He gave new life to a lame man in recreating his feet and ankles in perfect wholeness. And so Peter's emphasizing how scandalously this crowd acted. 
in rejecting Christ, pointing out a great paradox. You killed the author of life. You, you killed by demanding he be put to death. You share responsibility in his death. You took away the life of the giver of life. And you preferred one who takes away life instead, a murderer. But your killing Jesus wasn't the end of him. You see this man who's jumping up and down in front of you? He was healed in Jesus' name because Jesus is still alive. The end of verse 15, God raised this one you killed. And we've seen him for ourselves. We are witnesses. You see the great contrast Peter's been painting between the glory of who Jesus is and how people treat him. And the great contrast between the way they treated Jesus and the way God has honored him. The beginning of verse 13, God glorified him. The end of verse 15, God raised him up. In between those statements, you delivered him up, you denied him, you killed him. You see what Peter's doing? Part of the point of this sign outside the temple was to confront the people who were in the temple that their relation to Jesus Christ put them at odds with God. Because, don't miss this, God's great delight and purpose is to glorify His Son. If you are not living for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ, you are living contrary to God. There is no way possible to be more out of step with God than to not live for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what he's about. Treasuring Christ above all else. Working and praying that others would treasure Christ above all else. That is the way to walk in step with God's will. Christ is the main thing. If you love and seek Christ's glory, your heart is aligned with God's. If not, it's not. If you will not receive Christ, then the New Testament says in more than one place that you're actually in league with those who killed him and guilty alongside him. Look at verse 16. Peter states directly where he's been headed, what he's already implied. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So Peter here emphasizes this miracle was a sign for others. He says the man was given perfect health in the presence of you all. And he calls the healed man the one whom you see and know. It was for them. Verse 16 said this new strength and wholeness came from the name of Jesus, faith in the name of Jesus, and the faith that is through Jesus. Get the point? As the NAS has it, On the basis of the name of Jesus, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man. Jesus' name uh, in this verse stands for the fullness of who he is, not just the words that make up his signature. The name of the Lord often means that in the Bible. So, for example, in Exodus 32, Exodus 34, When the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord to Moses, it says he proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children the third and fourth generation. Okay, all of that was the Lord proclaiming his name. 
So the name of Jesus here refers to all the glory of who he is. So really, in a sense, Peter has been proclaiming the name of Jesus all this time. He's the author of life, the holy one, the righteous one, the glorious, exalted servant of the Lord. The name Jesus labels him as God's salvation. He is God's salvation, which is why his name makes the lame leap. The spirit-inspired author of the book of Acts, Luke, he carefully wrote this miracle story in the way he did to point out twice that the man was leaping. And he did that to tie this event to the prophetic words of Isaiah 35. And we read from that chapter to begin the worship service. It talks about the day of God's final salvation. And it says, to those who have an anxious heart, behold your God. And they're promised, he will come and save you. And when he does, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap, same word, like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And then the passage says later that in that day, verse 10, Everlasting joy shall be on the heads of those the Lord has ransomed. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So to see how the name of Jesus brought this lame beggar perfect health and overwhelming joy, that is a sign that in Jesus Christ, everything will be restored according to God's promises. In Christ, everything will be made right again and made exceedingly glorious forever. And that's why verse 21 says of him, he is the one, now back in Acts 3, verse 21, he's the one whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So when Jesus returns from heaven, All of God's promises about the restoration of all things will come to pass. And on that day, Christ will appear in his glory. We can say it will be the full revelation of his name. And that will cause all lame people who have put their faith in him to be able to leave. There will be a lot of joyous first-time jumping when Christ comes down from heaven again. The man in Acts 3 is a sign that points forward to that glorious future of the redeemed because it is a sign that points backwards to Isaiah 35 and God's promises. Jesus is the one who will bring this about. He is the author of life. He will renew all his people in strength and perfect health when... He returns, and he will do that because first he suffered. Peter talks about that next. In the final section of the chapter, it begins in verse 17. Uh, You can see how that verse transitions Peter's message by the way it begins. He, He appeals to them, and now, brothers, now that I've explained to you this sign you've witnessed, I will tell you how you must respond. You've seen the sign. I've taught you to understand the sign. And so now you must heed the sign. That's the final main point of the passage. Heed the sign. You must pay careful attention to what you've seen and heard. And you must take action in response. The action called for by this leaping sign that God has sent. Now, I know that uh, we won't get all the way through this last section of the chapter, and I do have some regret that uh, I showed up to preach here part one of a two-part sermon, but um, (laughs) here we are in God's providence, and we'll be able to get a little ways into this. Well, Peter, I think, takes up a somewhat tender tone in the beginning of this appeal. If you look at verse 17, and now, brothers... My fellow Jewish people, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. You've committed a great evil 
but don't despair as if there's no hope for you now. I know you did not understand the full horror of what you were doing. They are still guilty of a heinous sin, but, but their sin is not as great as it would have been if their eyes had been wide open to the glory of who Jesus was. The more willful a sin is, the more heinous it is. The higher degree of light and knowledge that one sins against, the higher degree of seriousness the sin possesses. And God's word is clear that in his perfect justice, high-handed sins will be met with stricter judgment. And Peter especially gives them reason to hope in what he says next. Even though you didn't know completely what you were doing when you sent Christ to the cross, God knew what he was doing. All the while, look at verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. When Christ suffered and died, God was fulfilling the scriptures. He was carrying out his plans, keeping his promises, doing exactly what he said he would do ahead of time. God foretold by the mouth of his prophets that the Christ would suffer. Then God made it happen. Don't despair as if you now have no hope. What you did was wicked, but through those deeds, God was accomplishing his sovereign saving will. Now, there are many places in the Old Testament we could turn to to hear God foretell the suffering of Christ. Almost certainly, though, I think the prophecy foremost in his mind at this point is the same one he's alluded to twice already in the sermon, Isaiah 52 and 53, about the coming servant of the Lord. When the Lord foretold, my servant shall be high and lifted up and exalted in the next breath, he foretold the brutal suffering this servant would undergo. His appearance would be so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And a few verses later, he prophesied he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And Isaiah 53 explains why God's beloved servant would endure this suffering. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He made his soul an offering for guilt. And out of the anguish of his soul, the righteous crushed one will see and be satisfied with what he has done. That's what Isaiah says. My servant will make many to be accounted righteous by bearing their iniquities. The lame man leaping in the temple proved first that Jesus was the exalted servant of the Lord from Isaiah 53. And that proves that Jesus' prior suffering was the saving suffering of the servant of the Lord foretold in Isaiah 53. He died in the place of sinners like a guilt offering for them so they could be counted as righteous before God. And that's why Peter calls for the action he does in the next verse. In response to this sign, and that's why Peter attaches the promise he does to that call. Look at verse 19, which says, Therefore, so do what I'm about to say because God fulfilled his word about Christ's suffering. Verse 19, repent, therefore. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So first, 
Notice that the need for these people to repent shows that their guilt before God was not removed just because they were ignorant. Nor just because they were fulfilling God's sovereign plan when they did what they did. Neither truth absolved them. Because of what you were doing when you killed Christ, you need to repent and have your sins blotted out. But because of what God was doing when he crushed his Christ, you can have your sins blotted out. If you will heed this sign, you need to repent. You must turn back. You, you need to have a change of heart about your sins and about your relation to Jesus. You need to return to God. That's it. Just turn. Turn around. Turn your back on your sins and your heart towards God. All of us, believers, unbelievers, young, less young, if we will respond rightly to hearing about this miracle, we must consider our sins against God and repent in the name of Jesus. And for all who repent and turn back towards God, their sins are blotted out. That is quite a phrase. Uh, the word picture here is not what you might think at first. The idea is not making a big blot of ink cover over the record of your sins so that they can't be read anymore. The idea behind blotting out is that the record of your sins is completely wiped away. So there's nothing but a clean slate left to look at. Not just scribbled over. Totally erased. Gone. As one lexicon defines this word, in the original language, the word means to cause to disappear by wiping. The same word is used in the promise that, that God will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his children. Or you could say it means to remove so as to leave no trace, to destroy and obliterate. How could we have any greater promise of mercy than this? The moment you turn from your sins, God wipes them away and makes them disappear in his sight with no trace left to look at. And you should remember, too, for your own soul's encouragement and comfort, that the sins Peter has in mind in this verse are not small sins. Who is he talking to? What are their sins? Killing Jesus Christ, delivering him over, denying him. And God will blot out all of it if they repent because Christ suffered for even sins like these. Now, did you notice in verses 13 through 15, uh, Peter twice mentioned how the crowd denied Jesus. And I do wonder if he especially focused on that sinful action of theirs because it was somewhat personal for him. Peter also denied Christ while Jesus was in the custody of Pilate. So Peter could promise this crowd with a heart full of assurance that you who have denied Christ can have your sins blotted out. He knew it was true. Firsthand, he'd experienced the same forgiving grace of God in the name of Jesus. So the lame man's feet were made strong by faith in Jesus' name to make you know that a bad man's sins can be blotted out by faith in Jesus' name. The work of Christ can count for sinners like us. It's a free gift that we receive through repentance, verse 19, and through faith, verse 16. And here's the last thing I want to show you before we close. This passage tells us that both repentance and faith, through which we receive this salvation and blessing of God, even those are things that Jesus gives to us and graciously works in us. Verse 16, 
affirmed that the promised blessings of God came through faith in Christ's name. But then the second half of verse 16 said that the man was made well by the faith that is through Jesus. Faith in Jesus is faith that is through Jesus. What? Jesus is the one who enables us to trust him. Even faith in him is a saving gift from him. And the same can be said about repentance. Verse 19 exhorts us to repent for forgiveness. But then in verse 26, it says, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him first to you, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Part of the blessing God gives in Jesus is repentance. Even turning back to God in repentance is a saving gift given in Christ. Jesus enables us to heed this sign about him and repent. So we see in this passage that we can receive forgiveness and all of God's promised blessings Not by our own power and ability. Not by our own piety or godliness. But simply through repentance and faith in Christ. And even that is Christ's work in us and gift to us. Christ is the main thing because Christ is everything. And by producing repentance and faith in the hearts of those who come to him. Jesus is shown again to be the author of life the author of spiritual life, the author of eternal life, the author and perfecter of our faith and our salvation. So, in the end, one lame man leaping is a sign that the name of Jesus is sufficient to save us all. And every blessing we could possibly need is given in him Father, thank you for Jesus. We we could thank you for so many other things. But there is no greater thing we could thank you for. Thank you for Jesus. Because in Jesus we know we have every blessing... In Jesus, we know we have forgiveness, we have eternal life, we have a promise of eternal perfect health. In Christ, we even have faith and repentance by which we receive all those other blessings. Thank you, God. God, I pray that you would help us. Pray that the name of Jesus would be greater in our minds and hearts and sweeter to us. Even now as we worship, bring this about by the power of your spirit, we ask. And we come to you only because of what Jesus has done with these requests.